0: Welcome to the True Falls Film Festival.
1: of their voices like you really hear the place in their voice you hear like oh they're from southeastern Illinois I mean it feels so you hear the history and the location and sort of the era that they're from it speaks just as much as what they're saying so Mm -hmm. there's all these different valences of
2: of how language narrates the past this is the true false podcast presented by KBIA I'm Alison Kohfeldt. On this episode, we're going into the archives to revisit a conversation about voice, featuring filmmaker Deborah Stratman. Enjoy this archived edition of the True-False podcast, presented by KBIA. We'll be back next week with our final episode of the season. Voice is an inextricable part of storytelling. The sound and textures of a voice can determine how an audience understands a story. In this episode, 2016 True false programmer Pamela Cohn talks about the power of voice with Deborah Stratman, the director of The Illinois Parables. The film is a series of vignettes that cover technological breakthroughs, exodus, and history. In this episode, you'll hear clips from the film throughout the conversation. Here's Pamela.
3: In the film, when you're playing with voice, it's very interesting to me, and then juxtaposing it, um, into the sound that surrounds those voices and how you embed those voices of Mm -hmm. the powerless and the powerful, Mm -hmm. even when you're narrating those stories, like your narrators are also taking a stance. Can you talk a little bit about how you might direct this kind of voice work and how you might just Mm -hmm. maybe you can think of an example or we can actually play this Murfreesboro segment first and use that as sort of a launching point to talk about how you contextualize all of this in and embedded in the sounds that you use.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah, we can play the clip first. And, okay. Yeah. Well,
0: they sent us down after we could get out to a little store down there on the corner. The roof was off of that place. And the people in there were just a crying and carrying on. Well, a kid, don't I don't believe, realizes exactly what happened. And I didn't. I remember some guy, some great big fella, come and grabbed I and my sister, and says, "I'll take you home." Well, we lived on around the curb there, and there wasn't two sticks of our house left. When we got there, it was gone. My granddaddy, he uh, was watching the storm, see, from the back porch, and when he seen that big funnel, why he hollered for my mother and uh, grandmother and little baby sister. To, to get in the cellar, they had dug a cellar where they kept their vegetables and stuff, and they just barely got in that cellar when that happened, hit. And I can remember the streaks of lightning that was going across the skies, and it looked like the whole town of Murfreesboro was on fire. It just lit Very up the whole town, and it used dynamite. Well, I could remember that, oh, that was terrible, how that whole town was burning. I was
2: buried, and um, I think I must have been out for a few seconds or something like that. And my eye was resting on the corner of a brick. And then, of course, I was all covered, and my mouth was pried open, and the sand and gravel and everything was trickling down into my mouth. And I thought, oh, my, I'm going to choke. Then, close by, I heard this girl praying. Oh, she was praying. And I can't tell you how many minutes we were buried. This seemed a long time, but they were walking on us, you know. We were
3: among the homeless. We had no home, no place to spend the night. And uh, when my father went out to where our home was, he found our parrot. Her cage was flattened, and she was out of the cage, as black as a crow, standing up on some of the rubble, singing, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. And my dad wrapped some clothing around her and picked her up, and we kept her for many years. That's a uh, wonderful segment
1: so the so the way that narration happens in the film is um really varied, just like um there's a lot of different styles that occur in the film from from reenactment to um quotation to using found footage, and the same thing goes for the voices so In this sample, we're hearing um, people who are elderly who are remembering the Murfreesboro tornado that happened in 1925. And they had uh, a VHS tape – or two, actually – that was um, just person after person who was still living in Murfreesboro came and there was – and this – I don't know when it happened, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Someone just sort of recorded all their stories. So it's just – It's not recordings that I made, but I loved the fabric of their voices. Like, you really hear the place in their voice. You hear, like, oh, they're from southeastern Illinois. I mean, it feels so—you hear the history and the location and sort of um, the era that they're from. It speaks just as much as what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to have that texture in the film— alongside earlier, you know, you've heard other people reading. So mm-hmm. there's all these different valences of of how language um, narrates the past. But I didn't want to limit it it just to language or something semantic that narrates the past, but also to the way that um, cite, you know, the way uh, a, a mound, for instance, there's a lot of mounds that come up in the film, there's right. like Indian mounds, and there's mounds by contemporary sculptors, and there's um, arsenal mounds, or there's the the sort of scoured path that the tornado has left, or the Trail of Tears, and sort of how that's literally a path. So I feel like those marks on the landscape are narrative as well, but they don't um, lean on language. They lean on traces that are left in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so the film... Because it's a historical – it's really a historical film, I wanted more than just one way that histories could be embedded. So as much as there's a certain history embedded in the texture of the one guy's voice who's talking about, you know, or the sand and gravel trickling down into my mouth, a woman, or the parrot um, who's black and singing the song. <laughs> I mean those um, – they give – they're just – they give a richness to the sonic texture just on the different – even just within language. And then obviously to that I I like to add um, music at times or ambient sound. And just each of those builds a site, builds a place, builds a connection to um, the past because the images very often are quite – are fairly static in this film. Mm -hmm. And and it really leans on the sound a lot to give – to make the universe of sort of what you're what you're considering at any given moment.
2: Coming up, we'll talk to Deborah about the voice behind a disembodied narrator.
1: I wanted the um, like when it's brought up the frustration of the people who lived um, in and around Nauvoo and it was when the Mormons started voting as a block that the threat sort of started to arise about oh
2: like wait a minute these people are going to have a voice here. First, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, listeners, it's Allison, letting you know that this episode of the True Vols podcast is brought to you by the University of Missouri. And that is, in fact, where we are sitting right now in the KBIA studios at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. We're here with Ryan Fumuliner, news director for KBIA and assistant professor of journalism, and he is going to tell us a little bit about the Missouri Method. Hey. Hey, what's up? Nothing. Just want to know about the Missouri method. What is that?
4: So, uh, anytime you ask a journalism professor here about that, they always use analogies for it. And one of my favorite ones that someone at the Missouri and the newspaper that uh, operates the journalism school said oh, you once got a was: newspaper. Yeah, we got a newspaper and TV station, radio station. Uh, but this newspaper editor was like, "It's kind of like you're an air traffic controller, but none of the pilots have their licenses." Um, because we just we cut students loose. We just let them go crazy in actual professional newsrooms. And when I go to public radio conferences and tell them that we have seventy to one hundred journalism students working in our newsroom as reporters, anchors, show hosts, producing podcasts like this one you're listening like to right one. now, yeah. these people look at me like I'm crazy because they're like, "You give that kind of control to people that you don't know if you can trust?" And it's like, yeah, we do. And it's kind of like you, you know, you my analogy, you you know, you push the bird out of the nest, right? And yes, lots of them do fall flat on the ground, and that's fine, <laughs> and that's part of it. And I'd rather them fall flat on the ground here than out in the world. True. Uh, but a lot of them fly, right? <laughs> and they do. They like. We've had students win national professional awards competing against professionals for stories as that students. they've done here. Yeah, as students. Yeah. And they win all the student awards. They win like, all the student awards, too. Um, but even professional awards, Edward R. Murrow awards, students have them on their resume before they leave here at the wow. University of Missouri. It's crazy.
2: This is the True False Podcast, presented by KBIA. I'm Allison Kofelt. In this episode, we sat down with Deborah Stratman, director of the Illinois Parables, which played a true-false in 2016. We're speaking with Deborah about how voice emerges in a film where there's no narrator, no main character, and no central figure. The commonalities in these parables is place and the stories that arise from it. How does the place speak? Which voices does a filmmaker choose to amplify? True Falls 2016 programmer Pamela Cohn spoke with Deborah about the editorial decisions behind this assemblage.
3: In terms of—we'll talk a little bit first. We'll we'll play a clip after um, this, but a very particular one about this notion of exodus. But um, what's really interesting to me is how, in a way, in this—in our culture— grappling with faith and grappling with technology and then all of a sudden they conflate somehow mm-hmm. and there are certain moments in your film where we kind of see that like rather obliquely in a way just because we're talking about natural disaster and a lot of times I think for certain populations of people that's those are acts of God, you know, they, they're, mm-hmm. the way you're playing with this faith, belief, disbelief, um, you know, running away, from something running towards something, all of these patterns that are emerging. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of like the spiritual base that you're trying to tap into that's Mm so part and parcel of who we are as Americans?
1: Yeah, not just who we are as Americans. I think who we are as humans that um – that there's always an unknown and what's the system that we've used to sort of bridge the gap or reach towards that unknown. And so that's where belief comes from. And so um, for me <clears throat> and for a lot of people, I think there's been a shift for some of us in a, uh, who, in whatever culture yours happens to be, where the, where it's a more secular kind of reaching. So maybe the reaching is towards technology or physics or whatever it may be to to bridge the gap between what we know and what we don't know. But the reaching is always there. I mean, it was, <clears throat> I guess, to bring it back to the Americana that you brought up in your first question, it, it is certain because because it was a reason so many people ended up coming to the U.S. in the first place mm-hmm. is they were sort of being persecuted for whatever reason for their belief system where they were from. And so um, there was just, you know, a huge number of utopian communities and sort of religious outposts set up in the U.S. just because people weren't going to be accepted where they were from and so the way that that I mean the film is nothing if not full of oblique angles because I feel like the way that that sits next to stories where um, like the one that you mentioned where a tornado passes through and when there's that kind of Erasure Mm -hmm. of one's connections and one's past and one's self, then there is a reaching. And often it's like through to whatever higher power you want to reach towards because you're kind of left with nothing else. I mean, you, when the connections to self, which are the objects and the things that make up, you know, your identity get Mm -hmm. erased, you don't have anywhere else to reach. And so I feel like there was something about combining that with. The advent of technologies that became um, sublime, almost with the advent of, you know, sort of the power of nuclear bombs, or with the critical mass equation. Somehow, once we sort of start started to be able to wrangle forces that were godlike, or sort of weatherlike, or um, much bigger than than an individual could be, then. I think that sort of—I'm getting a little bit off track, but I feel like
3: how do we say this? That um, no, I mean it's interesting for me. This this is kind of leading to to this way in which we've sort of imbued ourselves with godlike powers, right? If you
1: yeah. <clears throat>
3: sort of figure out mathematically, you know, biochemically or otherwise, in these laboratories, you know, and you yeah. have this very evocative scene where. You know, this formula is being written out on a blackboard with this just sort of very um, tactile sound to it. It's almost mm-hmm. like gunfire in a way, you mm-hmm. know. It's just kind of this, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it does have this kind of quality of, of yeah. triumph in a way. I want to play a, a clip right now, um, the first clip um, that comes about 20 minutes into the film about this exodus. So there's mm-hmm. this liminal space— where, you know, they're leaving a bad situation, they're walking into the unknown. Um, so I think this is the, the um, is it Parable 4 with the Mormons? Let's play that clip and take a listen.
5: Nauvoo was founded as a refuge before the people came here, they had been driven out of Ohio, out of Kirtland, Ohio. They had moved to Missouri, but an extermination order was issued. So when they came, they came with customs, accents, beliefs, and this aroused an intense curiosity. But then they began to vote in a block. That was a political problem. That began to take the accustomed political power of the old settlers of Hancock County away from them And that aroused more than just curiosity, that aroused anger. The old settlers here called this an absurd religion. They did not share the the beliefs that the Mormons had. So on a trumped up charge of riot, he was ordered to come to Carthage County seat to answer those charges. When they got him over there, they added a charge of treason. And then 150 men came in, charged the jail, threw the guards aside, rushed inside, and shot him and his brother to death. They marched 10 miles. On the way, they blackened their faces with gunpowder to disguise their identity. Nine men were put on trial for that, found not guilty. Immediately, what began going on is their homes were being burned. Over 110 homes were absolutely burned to the ground. This was in the United States here, across the river. was no longer the United States proper. It was a matter of being driven out of their own country.
6: They had been driven from everywhere they'd ever been. From the very beginning, every place they settled, they were driven out, driven out, violently driven out. And this was just to go as far away as they could to finally
1: get left alone. Um, so Some things never change. Exactly.
3: I was <laughs> just going to say what an um, achingly familiar story um, that we're like seeing... It's like a cross-stitch, you know, all Mm -hmm. over the the globe at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, there is this reverberation in a way of these quote-unquote historical moments that are being recontextualized and in a Mm -hmm. very—like they're being, you know, nested, right, in in a certain way, one sort of residing by the side of the other. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about this structure of what is a parable. I mean, how are you defining— but beyond story, like, how are you defining parable? Because it's also, of course, got biblical right. connotations as well.
1: <clears throat> I mean, for me, it was a way to have um, a story that had a real specific and local history. Um, so that the fact that it happened in Illinois is, is relevant, that it sort of um, has seeped into the ground where it occurred, but also that it could function totally allegorically, that mm-hmm. the stories are... That they take meaning from the specifics of the site where they happened and the people who were involved, and maybe couldn't have happened anywhere else, and at the same time could be anywhere else. um, Mm -hmm. Could stand in for, you know, Syrian migrants, um, you know, ending up in Europe or refugees from, you know, lost boys ending up in North Dakota or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, and I was hoping that each story, not just on a on an ethical or moral level, but also on a political level. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, the, the parables, it's important that they feel equally—they um, uh, have an ethic to them that's around spirituality or belief or sort of tolerance, but equally so around um, a kind of political outrage or— um, but the outrage is never um, in your face. It's it's oblique, as you as you brought up that word before. I wanted the um, like when it's brought up, the frustration of the people who lived. Um, and around Nauvoo, and it was when the Mormons started voting as a block that mm-hmm. the threat sort of started to arise about, oh, like, wait a minute, these people are going to have a voice here. And um, it's again and again what happens when, you know, folks have to relocate and their background and their, you know, desires and their organizing starts to threaten the people who exactly. are from that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often, especially because the um, I mean in this political climate right now, um, I mean the way that and it's always been the case in this country, I think, the way that faith and politics are intertwined and mm-hmm. um, where 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 intolerance in one um, field can really quickly sort of lean over to the other. So what is originally maybe just like a threat of, around voting rights or something or who's going to be in office next becomes one that's, um, you know, about religious outrage or sort of condemnation and mm-hmm. um, hate speech that's really... <laughs> yeah,
3: virulent. Virulent, yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my God, just turn on the TV or the radio exactly. any day of the week. And well,
3: this this power of, I guess... Um, You know, these lexicons that are built around political language and Mm -hmm. the way – I mean there are pretty brilliant people, right, who like write this stuff. They know what they're doing Mm -hmm. Um, and the the rhythms also are sort of like – or the delivery I guess I should say is really encouraged to be as much of a sermon or like pulpit – um, mm-hmm. you know, from the pulpit kind of speaking um, to sway, you know, great swaths of the population that are confused, lost, feeling like whatever they're holding on to is very tentative yeah, and that it could be swept away. And if this person, you know, is in charge, we're all going to be fine. And it never ceases to amaze me actually how um, our baseline naivete just like never quite lifts off.
2: After the break, we'll hear another clip from the film and talk about how Stratman balanced voices with music and ambient sounds in the Illinois parables. It's not an insistence on,
1: like, right now you should feel sad, or now you should feel ebullient, or um, because music is so facile at um, pushing us to feel emotion. And maybe it's why I, I'm often sort of cautious about using mm-hmm. it. and. This film uses it much more than right. some other recent films, but I'm, I'm wary of it because it's so powerful.
2: This is the True False podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Allison Covelt. Let's go back to the conversation between True False 2016 programmer Pamela Cohn and the Illinois Parables director Deborah Stratman.
3: In the music choices you make, I mean, for me, that's where I sort of – that's where the grief and the anger and the – those really sort of base emotions of – that that aren't nuanced at all can really play out. Can Just talk a little bit about your connection, your personal connection to music and when you're looking at footage and thinking of those choices that you might make Mm -hmm. or things you've heard where you think – I don't know what that is, but it makes my heart swell, and mm. I want to use that <laughs> someday in a film.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, music is tricky for me. I feel like um, it's so easy for music to um, to sort of bury the traces of what you've built up uh, in the image that, for me, I like to use it in more of a counterpoint way or um, I like to deploy the music where maybe you've been given a series of scenes that – um, intellectually, kind of build up. You're like, okay, this was a, a sort of intense history that happened, but mm-hmm. I haven't let given given I haven't yet given you or provided a space for the the affect of that, for the emotion of that. What we hear connect. You know, maybe it's happening a minute or five minutes or thirty seconds after an image or a sequence that sort of propagated potentially a certain emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it allows you to keep looping back and projecting forward and weaving something that's. Um, that feels less uh, compulsively directed by me, I guess, that it gives you the space to sort of Mm -hmm. have an outlet if you need it, but it's not an insistence on, like, right now you should feel sad or now you should feel ebullient Or um, because music is so facile at um, pushing us to feel emotion. And maybe it's why I'm often sort of cautious about using Mm -hmm. it. And this film uses it much more than... Right. Some other recent films, but I'm I'm wary of it because it's so powerful. And then in terms of choices of,
3: of that music and of those other sounds, I want to go back to this way in which, you know, where we're talking about the distillation and also sort of the restraint of music. There's also a lot of anger, you know, there, mm-hmm. um, just kind of like sitting there, um, meaning to be dealt with by the viewer. We'll segue into this Black Panther segment because that also too is very interesting and also somewhat predictable. But then you, again, like you're doing something that lays on top of that where that rage can sit there, be recognized, but yet still not somehow explode. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like this, this kind of, sustained tension Mm -hmm. um, in the narrative and the way in which that voice is there telling you something um, as a matter of course, almost like testimony that is very Mm -hmm. dry and removed and for the record, quote unquote. Um, So I'd like to play this this last segment of The Black Panther and, and we'll talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay.
6: As soon as Sergeant Daniel Growth and Officer James Davis, who were leading our men, announced their office, occupants of the apartment attacked them with shotgun fire. There was no
3: response from the group. There was no verbal
6: response. The response from the group was the firing of a shotgun blast at our police officers. There was no verbal response in addition to the the, the response to our police officers was the firing at them by a person in the apartment.
5: Sir, you say your men were fired upon? Witnesses who have seen the apartment say there is no evidence of bullets from the direction where the Panthers supposedly were to be.
6: The account that we made public yesterday gives a detailed explanation of what happened in that apartment. Uh, I stand wholeheartedly behind it as absolutely accurate. There is one inconsistency as well, for example... Uh, I do not intend to quibble about that account. Do you know to the truth? The account that we gave of the events is the truth. I am taking the word of our policemen over what we understand is supposed to be a version provided by defense attorneys and by the occupants of the apartment. Of course, I don't plan to resign. Have you been at the scene yourself? No, I have not been at the scene.
1: What you're seeing in this section is – or for a good part of it is my reenactment of – us. it's a re-reenactment in fact because the state's attorney's office, Edward Hanrahan's office, after um, the police and FBI as part of COINTELPRO had gone in and raided Fred Hampton's apartment – Um, they wanted to give their version of the story, which would have been that, you know, they were fired upon by Mm -hmm. people in the apartment. Mm -hmm. And so in order to create their version of the truth, in the state's attorney's office, they created a set which looked sort of similar to what I built, um, just two-by-fours, black floor, with all the furniture taped out on the floor. And all the officers who had been involved in the raid reenacted this in the state's attorney's office, and it was broadcast that night on the evening news as news. um, And this just blew me away Mm -hmm. that this A would have that that the A that they would have been, um, it's kind of a brilliant move, like, well, let's just reenact it and call it what happened, because that's how history gets made. Of course, you know, what gets broadcast and what gets talked about and what gets shown and Mm -hmm. what gets told is, is sort of the record. As with anything historical, it's our responsibility to keep questioning how it's written and to quit if we don't rewrite it at least to keep you know returning (laughs) over and over and over again I think to what has been sort of written into record and so I thought all right I'm going to re-reenact what they did the ritual of re-reenacting what they had done it is a kind of it's a very specific choreography Mm -hmm. um, and it's a specific rewriting of memory But then I wanted to sort of paste back on that later you hear some of Fred Hampton's speeches and some of the Panthers telling, but over the same gestures, over the same, not exactly the same shots, but the men doing the same gestures. So to take back in a way, or at least to provide another read to the footage, the one scene that's still emotional to me, well, there's two that are still emotional to me besides the fact that I've, you know, seen it a bajillion times over <laughs> many years now, and I think it has something to do with that accruing of of anger and um, and and maybe not just belief, but um, a sort of re you know remembering these sights. And at the end, when the hot air balloon kind of takes off the ground and you're suddenly weightless, um, there's this sort of recognition of the emotional traffic that you've been through. Mm. That um, Still moves me, which is always a good sign. I feel like okay, if I can watch something a bajillion times and still right. <laughs> feel like it's a release, and that's mm-hmm,
3: good. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. You're this welcome. is a great Thank conversation, you. as always. <laughs> Thank you, Pamela. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to an archive episode of the True False podcast. This episode was produced in 2017 by Todd Chin and edited by Bram Sablesmith and Ryan Famuliner. As always, our music was created by Tim Pilcher using sounds from the True Falls Film Fest. Special thanks to Callie Luna, Haley Godburn, and Danielle Hogarty. I'm Allison Kofeld. Thanks for listening.